one of these times I'm going to uh, come up with a, a fancy theme song. Amber and I were uh, singing the Itchy and Scratchy song last night, and uh, and that might that might work. It could work. You know, they fight, they fight, they fight, they fight, they fight, <laughs> fight, 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 fight. It's the Psychic Derailer Show. Um, but maybe not. Um, this episode of the Psychic Derailer podcast is brought to you by, well, me. I did talk to our uh, my uh, benevolent overlords at Tinker Coffee. The uh, bikes coupon code uh, is still good. So if you want to sign up for a Tinker Coffee subscription... Uh, never run out of fresh coffee. Uh, just use the coupon code BIKES at checkout, and you'll get 25% off your first month's subscription. Uh, if you're like me, the worst thing in the world is to go into the cupboard on that Saturday or Sunday morning and have no coffee. You never have to do that with a Tinker Coffee subscription, so go to tinkercoffee.com. Sign up for a subscription, scubscription today. The podcast could be brought to you by Yeti. If anybody knows anybody out there at Yeti, I'm open to the uh, to the possibilities. As I sip my Yeti coffee out of or my Yeti coffee, my Tinker coffee out of my Yeti tumbler. Today I am joined by. Well, he's a bit of a legend in the bicycling world. No, no. Well, I don't know. I had some... I put that thing on Instagram yesterday, and uh, people were coming out of the woodwork. You're very important to them. Well, that's a nice feeling. Yeah. Maynard Hershon. He wrote a book at one point. Well, he's written a lot of things. But would you say that Tales from the Bike Shop is probably the thing you're... There were two books. There were there was Tales from the Bike Shop. That was a collection of stories that ran in Winning Magazine, Bicycle Racing Illustrated. Yep, I'm old enough to remember that. And then there was a, a second book that was published in the mid-90s after I went to work for Velen News, and it was called Half Wheel Hell. <laughs> uh, I, I wonder if I should explain Half Wheel Hell. Please do. If you're riding with someone, and you two are riding happily alongside by side and chatting... And your riding partner is always sticking the front of his bicycle out in front of you by 18 inches. And then you have to speed up to get next to him again, and he just does it again. Rides forward 18 inches and hangs there, and you have to chase him. And it it turns a very nice ride into a uh, terrible ride. And I, I I don't think they know they do it. I don't think people do it deliberately. I think it's it's a little bit of a type A program. Yeah, and uh, so in yeah, I think it's it, it's both. I think that some people just don't know they do it, and some people do it, uh, and, and there's nothing type A about it. And then I think that there are other people that do it because it's they've got to be winning, huh. you know. That's a sad thing. And maybe and that may be unconscious and it probably is unconscious as well. I've always had this you know starting you know into cycling when I did. Um you know the only people you could ride with were those were people that raced. 
by and large. This it wasn't a recreational. You know, the touring boom had come and gone, and so if you were out on the road, you were riding with people that raced. And then, you know, the mountain bike thing happened. But that was like off-season. I mean, you didn't do that as a primary thing. That was when you weren't riding on the road. Well, maybe we'll go ride some trails. My memory agrees with yours. And now that I've... And I never raced. I, I did one cyclocross race in the early 2000s, and that was the only race I ever did. Um, that's a story in and of itself. (laughs) Uh, it was before the cyclocross boom. Uh, I got talked into doing the master's class at the, the morning of the event. As it turned out, there were only, once I changed classes, there were only four masters so I ended up placing third in the master's division. <laughs> and then after the race was over, found out that it was the Indiana-Kentucky District Championships. Oh, no. <laughs> so they handed me a medal. I was like, what the hell is this for? And he goes, well, didn't you know this is the Indiana-Kentucky District Championships? And I was like, you got to be kidding me. So I accepted my medal and then promptly retired. <laughs> um the point being is that riding with those people teaches you how to ride. And, you know, back then, even your friends, you know, you got one or maybe two warnings. And then if you continued to to do things that were not, you know, proper, you know, there were consequences. You know, and I would say the... The, the nicest of the consequences would be they would just drop you and leave you out in the middle of the country, and then you would never be asked back. Now, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, but I think, and I don't think that people need to race by and large. I think a certain number of people do. But I do think there's it's instructive riding with those people, and you do get a sense of how to ride with other people and how to handle yourself on the streets with cars. Um, I do wish that, you know, as much as I love this new, uh, well, I don't even know that it's new, but this, the, the revitalization of this, just, just ride, right. If we use a grant term, just ride. Um, I do sometimes wish that there, that those people had a little bit more, uh, structure in their, you know, because, yeah, half-wheel hell is a real thing, and it makes me kind of nervous sometimes. I, I came up uh, in the second half of the 70s and into the 80s riding with racers and and racing myself. And, and we learned uh, how to ride a rotating pace line. Mm-hmm. We learned how to ride side by side, close to one another, and not be nervous. We learned that there was a way things were done. And that way that things were done was the same everywhere in the world. Right. So, and and you were a bike rider. 
as the years have passed, so many new riders uh, who look just like bike riders, wearing lycra, they're riding carbon fiber bikes, uh, but they can't ride close together. And the the and the group rides, club rides, are raggle taggle and there's no discipline, and and people don't understand that their bicycles don't have brake lights, and they uh, they don't point out potholes or yeah. obstacles. It there's no. There's none of that form, that discipline that you're just talking about that we took for granted all those years. But but it, it's pretty much gone. So I'm sort of stuck now because I'm not I'm because I'm old now and I'm not strong enough to ride with young racer types. Right. And I'm scared to death to ride with other middle aged folks. No matter how slick they look, you can just join us on the greenways. It's perfectly fine. Uh, well, we we have an extensive uh, bike path network in Denver. We probably have three hundred miles of bike paths. Yeah, and uh, and those paths are pretty much okay, except for morning and afternoon uh, when the, the the new urban cyclist appears and. Uh, and tries to knock you down because they're uh, are they are they training? Oh no, they're going to work. Oh, they're going to work. I they're the you. fastest cyclists in the world for one and a half miles. Yeah, <laughs> on the way to work. Uh, but uh, so, so you 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 can't ride at rush hour. Yeah, it, it's interesting having watched over the years and seen how things have changed. I don't hear so much uh, anti lycra talk as I did a decade ago. That anything that had anything to do with racing was just distasteful, and I don't hear that so much anymore. But uh, there's just a, there's a big separation between uh, your urban fixie rider or somebody on an old Fuji ten speed, and uh, and and somebody who really looks or acts like a racer. I, you know, I think my and the issue that I've had with Lycra is not so much, you know, I I spent decades wearing it. I, I'm not going to begrudge somebody for doing that. Um, it's this idea that <clears throat> this idea that you, that it had to be done, that if you didn't do it, then you weren't a finger quotes, real, you know, cyclist. And you're going to get me started here. Well, yeah, no, no, <laughs> that's why, I, that's see, why you're here. <laughs> there were a lot of things that we did that, that were part of being authentic and we desperately wanted to be authentic. We right. wanted to be the real thing, real bike riders. So we rode Campagnola parts and we rode Italian frames and, and, and we probably didn't wear helmets and we wore little cycling caps perched way up on top of our heads and uh, we always wore white socks, and most of us shaved our legs. And and uh, it, it was it was that was how you were supposed to comport yourself, and how you were supposed to look if you were a genuine bike rider. And there weren't very many commuters, and the tourists the the tourists were club riders. And once or twice a year, they would take a tour on their bicycle, but they weren't 
like uh, committed cyclotourists. And maybe they didn't even own like a, a genuine touring bike. They rode whatever they owned. Right. It, it, uh, and, and just as you said, when you rode with people in the 70s and the 80s, uh, most of the people who were riding really regularly were racers or ex-racers or people who came from that milieu. Is that the right word? Yeah. Came from that. Right. Uh, uh, that's an interesting comment because I, uh, because of the way your shop is now, I sort of didn't expect you to say that because your shop is like an anti-racer kind of a shop. You know, I've got over the last, I would say over the last, let's call it three or four years. I'll be, I'll try to be conservative and say three or four years. I'm trying to get to the point where I'm not anti anything. I, if you oh, want to do it, it's a steep hill to climb. Well, I know, I know. I it, it's a I'm, it's a struggle. <laughs> it is a struggle. It's a lifetime struggle. But if if you want to do it, great. It's just not what I'm going to do. And what I want to do is because I think that the majority of the people out there, the people that that want to ride bikes. The whole idea that that the industry has, starting with Greg Lamond, but really ramped up with Lance, that you know guys who were you know forty five years old and fifty pounds overweight needed to have you know a carbon fiber racing bike with twenty three C tires and they needed to wedge themselves you know into Lycra. That's a high cost of entry, oh. right? So you take, you take somebody who, you know, maybe really wants to ride a bike, you know, it'd be like, it's like going to a car dealer and, you know, trying to, uh, sell somebody a, a, a car that you can take out and race on the track. These, these, uh, analogies have been used a million times over, but I think it, it raised the, the, the price of entry not only financially, but I think, you know, in some cases, uh, mentally, people just couldn't get to the point where they're like, I'm not going to wear that. They were just uncomfortable with the thought of wearing all this stuff that was so tight that it it uh, it left a lot of people out. So, you know, I'm at the point now where it's like, you know, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I think my bet, the bet that I'm making is that there are a lot of people out there who feel the same way even if right now maybe they don't know it and they wander into your shop and they look around and they think well maybe i do feel that way yeah i mean i've had two or three people that would say can i do this and i'd be like what do you mean can you it's your bike do whatever you want if it's something that I think really just doesn't make sense from a safety standpoint or, you know, from a functionality standpoint, I'll certainly let you know. But if you want to put toe clips on your bike, put toe clips on your bike. I don't care. You know, there's no rules. The only rule is it's your bike. You do it, you know, makes you happy. Do it is going to make you ride the damn thing more. Period. End of sentence. Well, uh- 
we we weren't that easy on ourselves. No, we. And we weren't, and you know, let's be honest. I've said a million times that you know when you talk about the downfall of bike shops, we weren't all that easy on customers either. As young men, you know, twenty two, twenty three years old, you know, we were we were uh, given a responsibility, and we did not take that responsibility all that seriously a lot of the time. Not as seriously as we did our racing or, or our training, or people that walked into the store that we thought were you know worthy of our you know. Our tension. Yeah. Yeah. Is that no longer the case? Oh, I'm sure it is. It has to be. I mean, that's human nature. But, uh, you know, I certainly, I try not to be that way. Again, <laughs> try being the operative word. I mean, I'm, I'm only human after all. But, uh, yeah, I think that certainly there's some of that that exists still. We made so many mistakes as young guys. Yeah. That seems like that that's a minor one compared to the other things well, we did. That's, yeah, it's true. So before we get too too ahead of ourselves, let's let's back up. Okay. How did the writing start? I was working in a, a, a bicycle shop, Sunshine Bikes in Fairfax, California in Marin County. And when I say that now, it sounds like I would say I was living in paradise, and I sort of was. But you were born here. I was was born in Flint, Michigan. Okay. I was a young man in Indianapolis, and then in uh, the early 60s, I migrated uh, to California so that I could work year-round in the motorcycle business and make a living. Gotcha. Okay. And then... In 1974, uh, I was living in a place that had no bus service on the San Francisco Peninsula, and my motorcycle broke, and my I was sharing a place with another guy, and he had a bicycle. So I, I started riding, and I immediately fell in with the same kind of guys you were just talking about. They were racers. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I bought an entry-level Raleigh bicycle, which in those days had uh, tubular tires, and it, it was a, a, a silly bicycle in retrospect, but that was what there was. Yeah. Then in 1983, I'd been riding for seven or eight years, and I was working at Sunshine Bikes in Fairfax, and the phone rang, and it was uh, a new a bicycle newspaper, Bay Area bicycle newspaper, and they wanted somebody to cover bicycle racing. And I answered the phone. And and in in retrospect, that was the call that I needed to have. But I, I spent a few weeks before I called the guy back. And I, I wrote a couple articles for that newspaper. It's called California Bicyclist. And and they, I don't think they ever liked me there. I I think they thought I was uh, politically conservative and maybe a homophobe. And and this is in the seventies. This is in nineteen eighty three. Oh, sorry, eighty three. Okay. And 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 they weren't really excited about me. 
And then I got another phone call from my friend Owen Mulholland, the late Owen Mulholland, who was the first American ever to ride in a, in a press car at the Tour de France. He was Bicycling Magazine's racing editor, which was a big deal in those days. Right. And there was a new magazine called Winning, starting in Pennsylvania. And he had written a column for the first issue of Winning about a clever bike shop owner who helps people in nice ways. And they needed somebody to write a column every issue, and Owen felt he was not going to be able to do that, and he suggested me on the strength of no information at all. He really, he just had a hunch. And I sent him a column, and they liked it okay, but it wasn't perfect, and I sent him another column, and they ran it, and suddenly, I was the only person writing in the English language for a bicycle publication anywhere in the world who had a space in the magazine that he could fill as he saw fit. And that was a wonderful opportunity, but it was a big responsibility because it was a racing magazine, and I represented people who'd been riding since the 50s and 60s. And here I was, a relative newcomer, but somehow I had caught the spirit of the times and I wrote stuff that people liked. And I began to get bicycles offered to me and trips to Italy offered to me and trips to Holland offered to me and trips to the Tour de France. And I, I began to be a, a, a relative big shot in cycling. I rode for winning for 11 years, as memory serves, from 83 until 94. And then I got an offer from Velen News uh, for substantially more money, an offer I couldn't afford to turn down. And I, and I, I was in the back page of Velen News for several years. And, and then they started hiring uh, a few guys. I, I think as a writer... As you get older, you can you can lose your readers a little bit because your readers aren't getting older necessarily. Readers are, are uh, growing younger. And maybe you become a little out of touch. And I became a little bit of a dinosaur. So I wrote for them sporadically until about maybe 98. And then for a long time, I wrote for a newspaper called uh, The Bicycle Paper out of Seattle, Pacific Northwest Paper, and that was my major bicycling gig. And I wrote advertising copy for people. I wrote the Serata catalog. I wrote the Fuji catalog. Uh, and I helped people with this and that. And I, I was in, uh, I wrote for the a Bridgestone catalog quite often. Oh, okay. Well, that... And I was in the Rivendell Reader for years, and uh, that was a lot of fun. It's a, it's a funny thing, as an aside. Uh, many times, you, you don't even know the people in the office of the publication. You've never met any of them. You, 
you, you write something and you attach it to an email and you send it. And, and hopefully they leave it pretty much alone. Right. But you don't know who the people are. If you passed them on the street, you wouldn't know them. And, and now I've been writing for a British motorcycle magazine for 25 years, and I've never met anybody associated with the magazine. That's a quarter of a century. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yet, I mean, we have good email relationships, but uh, again, if, if it would be passed on the street, I wouldn't know who was passing. It's, it's, it's funny. Uh, and a couple of times I've gone back to where I went to college and talked to creative writing classes about writing for a publication. Because it isn't exactly what you expect. It's a it's a it, it's an interesting thing. Uh, be, because once you've sent that piece in, you have lost control of it. You don't own it anymore. The magazine does, and they do with it pretty much what they need to. And you have to sort of keep that in mind. I wish I had talked to you before I wrote I wrote my book. <laughs> I didn't know you had a book. It was one of those uh, dummies. You wrote a book? Yeah. A dummy book? Yeah. I got a um I got an email at, we were Amber and I were sitting at dinner and I get this email and I I about just deleted it, but instead I kind of skimmed it. And as and then I looked at it a little closer, and I looked at her, and I said, "I think I just got an email from somebody that wants me to write a book." And um, they were looking for somebody locally to um, to write. Um, uh, what was it? What's it called? Bike? Is it? Bi- I, I can't ever remember whether it's bicycle or bike. I think it's bike repair and maintenance for dummies. Or no, no, no. God, I'm sorry. Is that a local outfit, no, that dummies outfit? No, no, no. It's not dummies. Jesus, how could I have done that? I hope nobody ever listens to this. Um, it's an idiot's guide. Oh, right, right, right. Idiot's guide to bike repair and maintenance. Um, uh, yeah, that the publishing house or the, the subsidiary is local. So they were looking for somebody local because they hired a photographer and they could go into the bike shop and take pictures for the thing. Oh. And, so, yeah, I sent him a couple, and you know, I had a blog, I had, you know, I had things to send them, um, and plus things to show them. And, uh, and they ended up giving me the job. You know, they tell you initially that how much money they're going to pay you to do this. And your first thought is, good Lord, that's a lot of money. And you get about two weeks into writing it and you go, this is not enough money. <laughs> um, so you know you go through all the the pain and suffering of writing the thing, um, and then I thought, "That's okay. I'm done." No, 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 silly boy. Because then they send it to the editor, who knows absolutely zero about bike maintenance and repair, oh. and she started chopping this thing up. And uh, had I talked to you prior to that. Maybe I would have taken it a little better, but man, oh, broke your heart. It pissed me off. <laughs> it didn't break my heart. It pissed me off. It's like 
you know, I told her at one point, I said, you know, I spent a lot of time writing this goddamn thing and I'm not going to write it twice. So, but it all worked out in the end. They got their book and I got some money and that's good. And then and never the twain shall meet. <laughs> <laughs> so I, what I, I had to do was I had to write bicycle catalogs. Yeah. For Which bicycles is, that didn't exist yet. In yeah. other words, you had to talk about a bike based on a very scanty product description. Because the bicycles were still in a process of being made. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that was an interesting thing, and it made me very skeptical of reading catalog copy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But but in, I don't remember it as being uh, hard labor. Although uh, Fuji, for instance, made so many models, there were just pages and pages and pages of models. Right. Uh, but, but with Serata, uh, representing somebody like Ben Serata, who's right. an icon, right? And he's a he's a much loved man in the industry. Representing him being the voice of Ben Serrata. Oh, and I wrote two Greg LeMond cycles catalogs. Uh, and I, I've been to Greg's house in Minnesota. I mean, I had wonderful experiences. Uh, but but representing those guys who are your heroes, really, uh, idols, uh, is, is, a, is a responsibility. How are we doing? No, we're good. I'm just good. I I did one of these where the battery died halfway through. I just want to uh, make sure that doesn't happen again. No, I hope not. No, I mean writing uh, writing uh, copy for for product that doesn't yet exist uh, makes you know uh, detailing a, a hub adjustment seem like uh, pretty easy work. I, I, you have to think if. There's a guy who writes the Lexus catalog. Mm. Has he ever driven that new Lexus? Probably not. No. And he, he has a list of the features on the car and the technical developments, whatever they are. And he and he has to imagine what the car might be like to drive. Well, and you have to think, too, that the brand probably has, you know, three or four or ten anchor words that describe their product and once you've done it a couple times you know you can you know where to plug those you words know in. anchor words in like rich corinthian leather you know <laughs> <laughs> and and you, you can use those until such time as the marketing department comes in and tells you that the anchor words have changed we're no longer using rich corinthian leather we're using you know uh perforated leatherette you know new hide or something to that effect new buck yes right um so how did the book you know who decided to take all the to take all the articles and and put them together in a book uh the first book uh tales from the bike shop was uh published by vitesse press in Brattleboro, Vermont, those were the people who had the original Vellum News before Vellum News yeah. got sold and moved to Boulder. So Vitesse Press told me to assemble 50 stories 
And I don't know how many stories I had, maybe 120 stories at that point. And by the way, if you'd, if you'd have told me in 1983 that I had 120 stories in my head about bicycling, I'd have thought you were crazy. Yeah. But somehow, month after month, I always came up with something. It's like, uh, it's a mysterious process. I, I, I don't think writers really know where all that comes from. And when it works the best, it seems to percolate up through your brain and through your fingertips into the keyboard. And, and it sort of takes over and writes itself. Oh, the best ads, because I, I got to the point where the people that I worked for, I wrote, you know, their radio copy. And then I got to the point where, because of the, my background in college, I talked them into actually letting me go into the radio studio and actually do my stuff. Like, so, okay, I wrote it. I want to go in and voice it as well. But the best radio ads I ever wrote, I wrote almost from beginning to end entirely in my head. Like, the idea started... And the words just went like, you know, just filled in. And, you know, I was usually on my bike or on the treadmill or something like that. And I would just kind of go off. I'd start thinking about what I needed to talk about. And before I was done, I had a, a 30 or a 60 second ad. And all I had to do was go to a pad of paper and write it down, you it know. It's marvelous when that happens. Yeah, it doesn't happen too much anymore. <laughs> well, you you still you have a very writerly way of talking. You you put together grammatical sentences, uh, uh, all the intonations. It it, it, it uh, I, I can see that you would have been really good at that. Well, thanks. Yeah, I've told I've been told that I had a conversational style. It's like my I said I didn't even know I had a style. It was like my banjo teacher telling me that he liked my style, and I said, "I don't even, I don't, I didn't even know I was wasn't aware I had a style." Were you a banjo player before you were a uke player? No, no, I, I came to this. You ever want to freak a banjo player out? I just tell them that I came to the banjo through the ukulele, and they look at me like I'm I got another head growing out of the side of my head. It's it, it's a completely different technique, isn't it? No, because I was playing claw hammer on the ukulele. Ah, and then I had a banjo teacher tell me, "If you want to play climber banjo, the only thing you need is a banjo." And so I went, "Okay," and I got a banjo. And it, it, I bet it's really fun to play the banjo. It is fun, and I'm really lucky that the the lady in the house seems to like it as well, because it would be tough if she didn't. Yes, because they're they're a little noisy. But yeah. You need, so th it's really funny, and I and I put this on the Instagram uh, post yesterday. That you know, again, one of the most well-known writers in all of bicycling, and and I met I met you at a a ukulele workshop <laughs> in Fort Wayne, Indiana. In Fort Wayne, well, yeah, in really like a thirty minutes. Uh, what was it, uh, Woodburn or? Something like I that. I think maybe it was, like, it was Woodburn. Yeah, Indiana. like tw twenty or thirty minutes outside of Fort Wayne, in the middle of GD nowhere. Um, you uh, you need to get back on that horse. And I put it down. It, 
the responsibility of practicing was weighing well, heavily see, on me. This is the thing. This is where you got it all wrong. This shouldn't be a responsibility. You should just pick it up and have fun with it. Well, it's it's right there next to my desk. Yeah. yeah. I can pick it up. Uh it's good for the old it's good for the old walnut, you know. Oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Absolutely. Every time you you know, learn part of a new tune or or you know, figure out how to play a new chord, that's good for the old gray matter. Keeps that thing ticking. Um what you know, how I don't know how tuned in you are to you know, are, do you follow the bike industry? at all well i i uh the the uh for for people who aren't aren't aware of this the bicycle industry journal uh is called bicycle retailer and industry news and i've known the editor for some years and i I saw him at a holiday party at a really nice bike shop in boulder called vecchio's and he said uh gee, would you like to write something for Bicycle Retailer and Industry News? And I thought, what a great idea. So I sent him a piece, and he ran it, but I never got a copy. I've never seen it in print. <laughs> I sent him a drawing that my wife did of a, a pair of old Seven Eleven cycling gloves. Yeah. Was that with the article? I, I got to be honest with you. I kind of I skim okay. Bicycle Retailer. Um it's more than you want to know. Well, yeah, it's it's more than that, but yeah, it's. I skim it to see if there's any interest, you know, interesting articles. But most of the um, opinion pieces, uh, you know, I either think they're trying to be too smart by half, or at this point, it doesn't really, it doesn't, uh, you know. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, I'm kind of out of the loop, you know, at this point. 900 square feet and two bike brands that most people have never heard of. No, I see. I can see that. It doesn't touch your life. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I, I really, I hoped that I could find a permanent place in bicycle retailer industry news because I have no bicycle business gig anymore. Right. Uh, and I miss it. Well, maybe you could be Grant's blog editor. That's a thought. <laughs> he's had he's had every opportunity to ask me. Yeah, and never has. But he, uh, gee, I did some work for him not long ago on some catalog copy, uh, and he uh, he sent me this like a care package full of nice Rivendell stuff that I use, and he he's a sweet man. He's an idiosyncratic sweet man. Well, absolutely. But but at base, you know, where his heart is, he's a, he's a wonderful fellow. If he wasn't who he was, the bikes wouldn't be what they are. No, that's, that's right. He's staunchly what he is. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I, I would not say rigidly. I'd say staunchly. He, he defends his positions well, and he, he 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 believes in certain things, and he follows through. His bicycles reflect uh, what he is, just as you just said. Uh, and I, I I love working with him. 
uh, he needs a little help in certain areas, but they're not areas that affect the bicycle. Right. They're in areas that reflect the way he presents himself to the world. Yeah. He does have a sense of humor about it occasionally. Yes. He, I can't remember how many years ago it was now that he was at Interbike and a picture showed up of him in front of a carbon fiber Bridgestone time trial bike and he was he crouched down in front of it and somebody took a picture and he was had the thumbs up you know (laughs) (laughs) tongue firmly planted in cheek boy does he hate a carbon fiber fork he yeah he's not a big fan no not a big fan at all Uh, now I've seen him where somebody drove into a garage with the bike on the roof yep but it would have rendered a steel fork unusable. I think his his point is that when carbon fails, it fails catastrophically. No, I, I, I can see that. Um, and you're going to the emergency room. If you're lucky, you know, that's the best case scenario is that you're going to the emergency room. Um, I, I think it, it goes back to, you know, we all like, At some point, the bicycle became the best way to put this. You know, if we think about it, I've always said that that riding a bicycle is one of the few things that you can do as an adult. And it's by and large, it's accepted, right? You can uh, that you can do it as an and you also did it as a child. There are very few things that you can do as a as an adult that you oh, did as a child. I've never been. I've never been down this path. This is interesting. Um, and you know, the bike was as a child. The bike was, you know, it was kind of a toy, right? I mean, it wasn't one of these. It was a, and then all of a sudden, now the bike is supposed to be. You know this the serious you know legitimate form of transportation or athletic tool or yeah and they're and they're both of those things but in reality i think we're mostly still trying to sell them as toys right they're just more expensive toys because does a does a guy who's my age you know 53 years old and you know let's be honest easily 40 pounds overweight no no does that person need and again need is a very slippery word oh a 17 pound bicycle right i mean so what's the what's the purpose of that other than we like shiny we like shiny toys right Whereas if there are only maybe what do you think there's a hundred thousand people like that in America riding six thousand dollar bicycles? Well, there's probably only four hundred in the world that are genetically disposed to actually riding them the way they're supposed to be ridden. See, that's an interesting question. <laughs> that's an interesting question. But uh, look at Ferraris. How many Ferraris are owned and driven by really qualified drivers? No, but that Ferrari is not the only car they have. No, that's a fact. Whereas and the bicycle probably is absolutely the only bicycle. Absolutely, because you know there are outliers to be certain. But you know, a forty-five-year-old guy 
who's got a good job, but also has a wife and two and a half kids and, you know, vet bills and cheerleading camp. You know, they may be able to cheerleading camp. Yeah. yeah, Well, yeah. I mean, that was very nicely said. (laughs) (laughs) They, well, these are all things that I've heard, you know, I can't buy this because (laughs) that all just goes into the noggin. Um, The, oh, you may be able to get past, you know, spending, you know, thirty-five or $4,500 on a bicycle once. That's going to pass through the finance committee once. Most of the time. You're not going to do it multiple times. Because, the you know, it's going to be, what do you need another bike for? You've already got, you know, you spent all this money on this bike. And the the answer of, well, I know, but this bike is for this, and it's not for this. I need a bike that's for this. What is it, N plus one? Yeah, right. How it's, many bicycles do you need? Whatever you have plus one. Right. Well, or in the uh, – Captain Bob McKee put it even better, which was what are, what are what's the, the uh, perfect number of bikes to have? And I just looked at him, and he goes, there's an answer to this question. What's the perfect number of bikes to have? And I looked at him, and he just said, just one more. Just one more. But that doesn't fly. Have you you gotten past that yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I have to. I get to the point where if I've got more than – if I have more than I have now, which is four or five – I mean, I, I get to the point where I'm looking around going, why do I, you know, why do I have all these, you know? I got down to the point where I had two or three, and that felt really good, you know. It doesn't really need to be any more than that. But then, I, you know, fall comes and winter comes, and I get bored, and I start thinking, and I start looking around and rooting around in all the parts boxes and start pulling parts out, and the next thing you know, it's like, well, Christ, all I need is a frame. And I could build another bike. And then the next thing you know... You've got another bike. Yeah. But I'm not around all these parts all the time, so I don't have that temptation. I have two steel bikes now, and uh, it's all my bikes, two bikes, and one of them spends the winter on the trainer. Oh, you're still doing that? Oh, yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I still, I do that. Yeah, see, I came up that way. Yeah. Uh, I did, too. Well, I let it go. <laughs> I can't do that. I, 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 it isn't that I have got my head down and I'm going as hard as I can all the time. You just want to keep your legs moving. Yeah, and I ride at a pretty brisk pace. Yeah. Not, I mean, for, for an old guy. And it, it, it's hard when you've been part of that culture. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to shed that. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I just, it's just boring as hell. It bores me to tears. It does, really? Oh, God, yeah. That's why I put it down. You Do you ride by yourself most of the time or with folks? Um, I ride by myself if I'm going back and forth to work. And then on the weekends. Group rides? No. It's me and Amber and oh. maybe a couple friends. I don't ride in groups anymore. It's got to be people I know. Yeah. Or if it's a group, it's got to be manageable. I mean, 
you know, because I was riding with guys that I rode with them so much that I could see the guy in front of me, I could see his hip move and I knew exactly where he was going. And he also knew that I wasn't going to be in his way. He wasn't going to run into me. And, and I just have a really hard time. No, and not a word was spoken. And all this stuff was just understood. Yeah. Uh, uh, when pro cyclists retire and they're, and they don't train as much, uh, they, and they can't go on those same rides that they always used to ride. Uh, that's a really hard thing, I think, because they yearn for that sort of, it's more than camaraderie. It, it, uh, and the conversations on rides, uh, they just seem to flow. It's and, it's a wonderful experience for uh, for people who've learned how to live this life. There was a store there up on the north side, not far from where your, your niece is, um, and they started doing these group rides, and it got to the point where they had hundreds of people showing up. And they had, they had to break them up into, you know, three or four groups. And um, there's a local guy who um, was a pro. Um, and he said he went to that ride once. And he said, no. Too scary. Too sketchy. He goes, guys, in the middle of the pack, cross-eyed, trying to stay in the group that had no business being there. And uh, he said, there's just no way. He goes, somebody's going to get killed. And uh, that's, so yeah, I'm not, and I just don't, I don't want to spend the time to have the fitness necessary to go out and sit in a group or in a pace line. It just doesn't, there's, Riding, putting in miles for the sake of putting in miles has absolutely no attraction to me anymore. If I'm going to ride my bike, it's going to be a function of I'm going to either go to work, I'm going to go to the store, or, uh, you know, if we're out on the weekend and we're just riding the greenway, well, then I'm spending time with, with Amber and we're having, you know, we're outside doing that. So that's, I don't really count that either, but you know i'm i'm riding for the for the pleasure and enjoyment of riding or i'm using it as transportation you know i don't even have a, i mean the i think the the skinniest tires i have on a bike right now are probably 42 millimeters wide wow so and and that's you know my other issue with this this focus for the last well, since 99, in that 99 when Lance won the first tour. Um, Is that right? Do you remember that? Was I th- it 99? I think it was 99, huh. yeah. Um, this this focus on racing is that once this that guy, and I'm going to say guy because I think mentally this is where mostly where guys are, when – when they figure out that they're never going to get from the B group to the A group, 
or they can't, you know, life gets in the way, right? And and they've got, you know, vet bills and cheerleading camp, and they can't stay in the A group anymore because they can't go to the ride as 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 often as 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 is needed to do that. What's going to happen? That person isn't going to sell. I I don't think that person's going to then sell their racing bike and buy a touring bike or buy something like that and and start riding for um you know leisure and transportation i just don't think it's going to happen again there may be some outliers and maybe it will but i think by and large that person's going to take that bike and is going to sell it and they're going to go back to playing golf or they're going to take up you know scuba diving or drone racing or someplace else where they can they can you know uh, spend their money. And I don't know. So I don't know that this, this, again, this focus on racing to the exclusion of everyone else, you're not, what you're not doing, you're not creating lifelong customers. You're creating customers for the, the two or five or, or 12 years that, that they can manage to, to, to fit that into their life. And then once they're gone, they're gone. That's just, I don't know. I could be wrong, but it certainly seems that that's the case. Uh, see, I, I resist believing that, but the fact is that as I think about it, uh, it it's it seems to be true. Uh, I, I would like to have. I would like to form a club in Denver uh, for people who did race but are still riding and know how to ride and can do a slower ride, but with the same sort of organization and form and, and discipline. Mm -hmm. But, uh, it's hard to find those guys. There, uh, there, there's thousands of cyclists in, in Denver and Boulder. Sure. You could, you could find people who might claim to be those guys. And then you find out that they've never ridden a wheel. They've never uh, ridden close behind somebody and drafted. They never don't know how a rotating pace line works. They don't know all the little, like that movement of the hip that you're talking about. They don't know about those little things. But they want to be in your group because yeah. it sounds cool. And then your group doesn't work. It's it's a difficult thing, and the next thing you know, you're drone racing. Yeah, <laughs> there's, yeah, as reluctant as I am to believe it, there's a lot of truth in that. And you know, the motorcycle thing can't be much different, right? There's etiquette and protocol with, uh, you know, let's be honest, much higher stakes when you're when you're riding a motorcycle. My feeling is that motorcycle riding is safer than bicycle riding. If you ride a bicycle every day on the bike paths in urban Denver, Colorado, you will get knocked down. You can ride a motorcycle every day, and especially if you don't commute in the middle of town, uh, you're probably going to be okay. And you can ride thousands of miles on the highway, and you're probably going to be okay. Uh, I've been hurt on the motorcycle, but I've been hurt more on the bicycle. Hmm. Uh, I have a titanium femur, uh, 
because of a bicycle crash and I, I, I think I've broken three collarbones and two of them were bicycle crashes and uh, my wife got knocked off her bike on a Denver bike path and it, it's it's really common to be afraid on those paths so and motorcycling in a funny way is a more mature sport and hmm. the uh and there are a whole lot of older riders they're mostly pretty sensible uh i mean if you look at sales of something like the honda goldwing which nobody ever under 40 ever bought right and 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 so and bikes like that big touring bmws uh and you look at some of these rallies that are held all around the country for people who uh, who want to travel a long distance and camp out with their friends. Uh, it, it it seems to be a more mature sport. Now, the baby boom is aging out of motorcycling, and some of the manufacturers are in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, I can only hope that they ride through this and come out okay on the other side. Uh, I don't see uh, young people today, millennial age people, getting involved in bicycle racing. But the, but I'm not around bicycle racing as much as I used to be, and there might be thousands of them. I, well, I think it's worse than that. I mean, you know, the young people. You know, if you're you're familiar with SEBA, right? Central Indiana Bicycle oh, Association, yeah. the big the big bike it's club, huge, isn't yeah. It? Well, it's it's not as huge as it was. I mean, my understanding is their their numbers are are shrinking, you know, every year because the, the older people are are aging kind of out. aging out, but young people are not joining. They don't um, they don't want to be part of a club. They don't uh, they don't see the uh, the Again, this is my understanding. I could be wrong about this, but they don't see the the benefit of of you know paying dues and 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 being a part of something like that. They don't see the how it how it uh, benefits them. I don't think they like to do the same things their moms and dads did. I, I think that they uh, that they do everything differently. Yeah. But that you know the the uh, the the membership numbers for SEBA I think are are in really steep decline. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, so. Do they still get as many people for the Hilly Hundred and rides like that? I don't think so. I mean, I went to the Hilly. You know, I was uh, when I was on the the board of directors of uh, then IndyCog, now Bike Indianapolis, an advocacy organization for the city, and we went down. Uh, the Friday night before the Hilly to, to sell, uh, well, to take donations and to give away the bike map, uh, that, that the organization had created. And I hadn't been to the Hilly in probably 15 years. And as I walked around, I saw the same people. Uh. It was the same people in some cases wearing the same clothing you know, still wearing bellwether jackets and tights that they had had 15 years prior. Bellwether, I haven't even thought about that <laughs> brand for years and years and years. Yeah, yeah. So there's not a lot of new 
not a lot of new blood, I don't think, coming into some of these organizations. But the but they are riding bicycles. Yeah. Yeah. Because the are. bicycle for a long time it's like the symbol of millennial life. Beer and bicycles. Yeah. Well I think that's still I think that's still the case. I mean, from everything I hear, yeah, bikes and they want public transportation and and uh things like that. Yeah. It's it's interesting. I've never seen such a demographic change in such a short period of time in my whole life as in this last what, ten, twelve years. Yeah. Yeah. So um the reason you're here is you actually you're coming through from buying a motorcycle. I I bought a motorcycle from a really nice fellow who lives on the Jersey Shore. Uh, he, he pointed and he said, the ocean's right over there, which I, by, by which I think he met 100 yards away. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I rode through Pennsylvania and down uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Skyway through the Shenandoah Mountains, and I rode the... Uh, uh, the uh, uh, Blue Ridge Parkway, and I went down to uh, Bristol, Tennessee, where I visited the birthplace of country music museum. And I'm and I'm here to see family. My niece lives here, and her husband, and uh, and then I'm I'm going to work my way back to Denver. Uh, I've got a couple of stops I want to make. So this is a a a, a big trip for me, and and. Uh, I'm enjoying it without any deadlines. I didn't have to be any place at a specific time. It's nice. Because you were on the motorcycle when you came to the to the I, I ukulele I, workshop. I rode out here and I spent some time with my niece. And there was something else going on here. Oh, I think that the the big motorcycle races at the uh at uh, Raceway Park. Oh, okay. Uh no, at the speedway on the on that road course. The GP, yeah. Motor GP was yeah. here, and then the next weekend was that uh, Uke Fest. So I rode up to uh, Fort Wayne and and went there, and then I rode back to Denver. I tend to travel on the motorcycle. I, I uh, especially when I do these music pilgrimages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels appropriate to get there. On a motorcycle doesn't feel real if you drive a car or fly. I, that's an old thing with me. Uh, I I feel I should uh, I should get there on the motorcycle. I, I and if if I were a touring kind of guy and I've tried and failed to be a touring kind of guy on a bicycle, I would feel the same way. If I arrived on a bicycle, I would be happy to do that. I always thought I should ride to my high school reunion on the bicycle. And uh and I I, I haven't done it yet. I that'd be a long pull. Well, it is. Yeah. I mean especially if you're going to ride both ways. Yeah. It's 1100 miles. So that's what that's got to be 2 weeks minimum with hardly any rest days. 
and then another two weeks on the way home. So, motorcycle sounds better. Well, two and a half days, three days. Yeah. Well, one of the um, the threads that I think kind of um, go through most, if not all, these episodes is that you know, as I've become older, I'm I'm fascinated by storytelling. And I think that, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to look too far. Um, If we talk about old music, that was all storytelling, you know, and, you know, most writing is some form of you're trying to tell a story. Even in a catalog, you're trying to tell a story. Um, That's right. That's right. And... So one of the things that I've that I've tried to focus on with this podcast is is the storytelling and trying to t- kind of tune into that a little bit more. And uh, you've got you got a number of stories, and I appreciate you sharing them with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always good to see you. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right, everybody. See you next time. Bye-bye.